This is a Federal News Network podcast. For services contractors, the 2020 Defense Authorization Bill is like a pack of Marlboros. There's a lot to like, but there's also a lot they'd like to drop into the ashtray. For details, we turn to the president and CEO of the Professional Services Council, David Berteau. And David, you have analyzed the 2020 NDAA in both the House and the Senate versions, and you have let them know what you think. That's right, Tom, and thank you for having me. As you know, let me just review kind of the process. Uh, The House and the Senate each passed their own version of the Fiscal Year 20 uh, National Defense Authorization Act. They did that earlier this summer without knowing what the final number of dollars was going to be available, right? That didn't get settled until we had the uh, bipartisan budget agreement signed into law on August 2nd that uh, that actually raised the caps for defense and for non-defense spending. So now the committees have to resolve the differences between the House and Senate version. A lot of that work is on the dollars, how many dollars go to each program. But there are also hundreds of other provisions that matter to our members. And so we focused on those. We actually sent a letter uh, last week to uh, to both committees on 50 different provisions, some of which we support, some of which we oppose. And we'll be working with the staff and with the members to resolve this as they put the conference bill together. And, of course, they have a good solid three weeks to do all of this work. <laughs> well, that's true. Now, we actually set a high bar last year because we passed the National Defense yes. Authorization Act before we the start of the fiscal year for the first time in quite a number of years, and we're actually optimistic we're going to come pretty close to that this year. We may miss it by a few weeks, but, uh, but we're in good shape uh, across the federal government if the Congress and the president want to do that. Okay, so security clearance process, that's in the NDAA and something you've told them about. Right. And and actually, the House has a number of provisions. The Senate has actually incorporated in its bill the entirety of all the security clearance provisions that were in the Intelligence Authorization Act, which is a separate bill. We would like to see those enacted into law. Many of them address a lot of the issues we've talked about, better reporting. Uh, we've reduced the backlog in investigations, but we've actually increased the backlog in adjudications. And there's no visibility into that. So contractors have no idea where their where their cases stand in there. There are still issues about recognition of reciprocity. A clearance in one place is not good enough for a clearance in another place. There are issues of the government knows information about contractors who are working on government networks and government facilities, and they won't share that information with the contractors. So you don't know what your folks are doing, even if there's risk there. All of those are addressed in these provisions. We want to see them enacted, whether it's in the National Defense Authorization Act or in the Intelligence Authorization Act, or as far as I'm concerned, in both, as long as it's the same law. So we're pushing very hard for those. And also closer to the military core issues, there are a lot of provisions for sustainment and readiness planning improvements and all of that, both in the House and the Senate. What's your take on it? Well, our take is that there's still a gap between what the Defense Department says it wants to do and our visibility into whether they've proposed the resources to do those sorts of things. So everybody says one of the priorities of the national defense strategy is improve readiness, increase readiness. And we believe, in fact, we've got a lot of evidence that supports this, that proper use of contractors can actually improve readiness at lower cost in less time than the way DOD is doing it now. What we don't have is any visibility in the budget plans of what the DOD plans to spend and how that relates to both readiness and life cycle sustainment costs. You know, 70% of the cost of a weapon system is after it's fielded. Sure. And that's where you can actually reduce those costs dramatically. And there's a bow wave of costs that unless you get them under control will hurt readiness in, in both the short term and the long term. So these provisions actually improve the visibility of the DOD's plans and the resource allocations. This lets the companies invest 
where they're going to be needed to do. It'll really benefit DOD and, and national security in the long run. Because the military leadership have been running around saying that we want to increase readiness, but we need the money to do so. So incumbent on them is transparency in what that money is and where it goes. Well, and that also then allows you to track on did you spend the money where you said you were going to spend it and did you get the readiness improvements that you need to get? It's a cycle that we need to improve. Fair questions. We're speaking with David Berteau, president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. And non-value-added programs, repeals, delays, some burdens that they want to take away and Golly, Section 899 and 834 of the Senate and House. That's right. So uh, in, in Section 834, the House repeals a provision that actually didn't make any sense uh, when, when it was put into law a couple of years ago, which was to create a separate cost accounting standards boards for the Defense Department. There is already a cost accounting standards board for government-wide contracts. Imagine a situation in which a company has to comply with duplicative or even potentially conflicting requirements in cost accounting standards. It would be chaos. Um, DOD, fortunately, has not moved out rapidly to implement a law that didn't make any sense when it was passed. And now this provision would repeal that law. We're pushing very hard for that repeal. Yeah, it sounds like if they had two cost accounting standards, they could decide which one they wanted to cudgel somebody with that didn't comply with it. You could certainly see that evolving. And, and in fact, the, the chance of it being internally consistent is almost zero. And so this is bad government at its worst. And it'd be really good if we could repeal this. Similarly, there's a Section 899J in the House would repeal another provision that was enacted a couple of years ago, uh, which would uh, create a pilot for protests, right? And we all agree that there are cases in which protests are a problem. They may be frivolous, they may be unnecessary, and they take way too long to resolve. What this provision wanted to do was create a pilot in which the loser would pay. The question that never got answered is, pays what? Uh, because DOD actually doesn't know what its costs are associated with the protest. They don't collect costs in that way. They plus, don't comply with their own cost accounting standards that we have to. Yeah, plus all the cost is not necessarily on DOD. There's a big GAO cost there if is that's a big where GAO the protest cost. goes. And if you can't determine what the cost is, then it's just an arbitrary and capricious uh, matter. And so the question is actually not how do you figure out what a loser should pay, but how do you reduce the negative impact of protests on the procurement system. And there's a lot of better fixes to do that, including, for example, complying with the previous legislation that says do better debriefs. Right. One of the major reasons companies protest is because they got a lousy debrief and they don't know why they lost. Protests allow you to get that information. Well, give it to them in the front end and then you don't have to do a protest. A second one would be a faster process. And for that, GAO would need better resources, right? And so we would promote that. We'd like to see protests especially, you know, non-complicated protests resolved in a matter of 60 days or even 30 days instead of 100 days. As it is, they take the full 100 days. So we can do a lot to improve protests without this provision. So let's repeal it. And the House is dealing with one of what I call the zombie issues, which is lowest price technically acceptable, which has been the object of a lot of contractor ire now for years running. And every time you think you're over it, up it comes again. Well, part of it is is DOD's tremendous slowness and sloth in, in implementing prior year legislation. So the original legislation, which would require DOD to justify the use of LPTA, because there are cases where low price is the right answer, right? That legislation is so old that it was actually signed by President Obama while he was still in office. DOD has yet to implement those rules and regulations. Uh, similarly, there's provisions in the FY19 bill that OMB has not moved out on implementing. What this provision does is it says, start giving us the data on how much you're using it so we'll have a benchmark against which, which we can measure compliance 
if and when they finally do start complying with the law. This has been an issue. And, and, and PSC actually believes there are places where low price makes sense in commodities in, in places where you've got a commercial standard put into place and you know what you're getting for your money. But all too often, LPTA is used for all the wrong reasons and it has negative results. And we'd love to see legislation that gives us the visibility into this so we can tackle it more forcefully for our members. And what about small business? Well, small business has a number of conflicting provisions where DOD and the Small Business Administration are moving in non-consistent ways, shall we say. So some of the legislation attempts to resolve that by conforming the requirements and the regulations across the two agencies and, and, and getting it so a small business actually knows where they stand in this process. So we'd love to see that enacted as well. And the PSC, of course, is weighing in on these issues with a long letter to the top members of the House and Senate Armed Services Committees. Do you have other associations, other groups joining you in these similar types of concerns? We do. We often uh, collaborate. There's a Council of Defense and Space uh, 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 Associations, CODSIA, and we work together and and sign uh, letters up on a number of these provisions as well. And and the letter and all of its attachments will be on our website, and we'll provide you the link to that so you can provide it to your listeners. And we should point out, I guess, that the Professional Services Council, CODSIA, different groups like that, are groups that members listen to. Uh, we do. We believe that. We provide them with not only the position, but the logic and the analysis and the reasoning behind that position, which not only allows for better legislation, but better resolution of, of differences between the House and Senate versions. We'll continue to do that as long as Congress is around. Well, something else I notice in these and similar types of letters that get sent to the Hill by people that know their way around the Hill is that you refrain from criticizing them directly or questioning their motives, which seems to be the, I don't know, the mode of a lot of protest type of discussion these days. We believe, uh, Tom, in legislation, just as in contracts, the most important thing to focus on is results. And so that's where we start and that's where we proceed and that's hopefully where we end up. And, and on all 50 provisions here, uh, we, we don't actually keep score. Uh, we just keep going. Thank you. David Berteau is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks so much. You're welcome. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com along with a link to that letter. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One.